I took a life-altering trip last week through civil rights museums and monuments in Alabama. I'm a visual learner and want to see for myself many of the famous spots where people have stood their ground, where people have taken risks, staked their claim on higher moral ground. They stood their ground for racial equality despite laws, bombings, water canyons, attack cannons, attack dogs, lynchings, and other forms of domestic terror. And I went in part because as a child, I did not learn the whole history of my country. And as a religious leader, as a Unitarian Universalist, as a Buddhist, as a citizen, I'm committed to scratching deeper to learn the vast spectrum of history. It's too easy to summarize and make pretty past actions. The problem is, without knowing the complexities of the past, we misjudge ourselves in the present. When I don't fully know how many people took both large and small actions over and over again against seemingly impossible odds, then the problems of today the darkness, the moral backsliding, the bullying, it feels new. But they're not. Insurmountable? They are not. Discouraging? They are. Yet it is possible to keep going, just as thousands of others have kept going in the face of adversity. So I'm looking for that inspiration. How did they keep going? These observations bring me to Hope Church today and our ongoing efforts to celebrate the history of the church. We're in Hope's 50th year, if you haven't heard. And we've been pausing throughout the year to look at the church founding and growth decade by decade. So today we're exploring the 1990s. And thank you very much, Bruce Luria and Corey Dorman, for reminiscing earlier during our adult forum. And thank you, Robert Billings, for videotaping for posterity. We anticipate Hope's 75th and 100th celebrations with that videotaping. But like the history I found in Alabama, you helped start us off by looking at both the successes, the great successes of the 1990s, as well as the mistakes, the clarity this church had, and then the blind spots. So in this sermon, I turn our attention to a pivotal moment, a painful time in Hope's history. And although I began with my pilgrimage to Alabama, I'm not looking at race today, but at something psychologists call emotional cutoff. Let me explain the term emotional cutoff. It refers to circumstances we each have experienced in our families, I'm betting, that we've each experienced in our primary relationships and in our central institutions, such as your place of work or church. One working definition of emotional cutoff by the man who originated the term, psychiatrist Murray Bowen, is 
Emotional cutoff is the process of separation, isolation, withdrawal, running away, or denying the importance of the core family, institution, whatever you're running away from. In emotional cutoff, communication ceases altogether. The cutoff may be merely internal. I live with you or near you, but I will not talk to you. Or it may be geographical. I separate myself physically from you. A person may leave the family or group emotionally or literally. And not all geographical departures comprise cutoff, of course. People leave home or job for a variety of reasons. People leave churches for a variety of reasons. Emotional cutoff is when the departure is reactive, when it is an unskillful response to emotional intensity, when problems present themselves. For example, if your family is normal in the way my family is normal, meaning it is filled with both great joy and great sorrow, wonderful support, and dreadful dysfunction, then you likely have experienced or yourself practiced emotional cutoff. In my case, like when I was running away as a six-year-old, when something didn't go my way, to having currently an older brother who has cut all ties for the last 20 years and literally fallen off the grid. So my family has its share of emotional cutoff. Let me be clear what emotional cutoff is not. Leaving a toxic or abusive relationship or situation, that's appropriate. This leave-taking leave is right and necessary. And I'm not talking about that kind of life-saving leaving at all. Emotional cutoff is not the very healthy comings and goings that come with growing up, maturing, differentiating yourself, building your own life. As a parent, oh my, that's what we're trying to do. Instead, emotional cutoff is an effort to relieve anxiety clumsily. It may momentarily bring relief, got away from that, but it ultimately compounds it. It leaves all these questions and unfinished business, and there are good and appropriate ways to leave your family, leave your job, leave your church. But any actions that burn bridges, that's unskillful. Because the irony of emotional cutoff is it actually strengthens the unhealthy bonds, because it leaves each person or party thinking more about each other. Oh my gosh, why do you leave? What I do? Oh, you know, that whole spiraling of thinking that, that we do. Emotional cutoff is a rea- an automatic and reactive flight. It's a strategy of conflict avoidance, of peace at any price to avoid upset. So let me give you some examples. An anxious spouse vows, 
well, I just won't ask for sex any longer after their partner rebuffs advances. Emotional cutoff. I hate you! screams the angry teenager as she slams the door in her father's face, who in turn goes off to pour himself a drink and sulk. Emotional cutoff. A disgruntled congregant says to another, Nah, I'm not coming to church much anymore. The direction the minister is taking us is putting me off. Emotional cutoff. In each example... I'm out of here is easier than negotiating changing roles and expectations. It's easier than saying, that hurt me. This is what I need. For some, it becomes a lifetime strategy for dealing with conflict. We might compare a relationship with cutoff to a pipe. There's no give and take. The members can either go away from one another and not get close to one another. The relationship is simply stuck and rigid. By contrast, healthier relationships are more like rubber bands with considerable flexibility in the coming and going, but always confident in the connection. It is okay to say, oh my God, you hurt me, and you know what? I need to step away for an hour, a day, a week, but I'll be back. Family systems theory, Murray Bowen that I quoted earlier, claims these patterns happen over and over again across generations and families. They happen over and over again across decades in institutions. For example, I can see undeniable cutoff in my behavior in my parents, and then in their parents, and then even in generations before. The patterns repeat until someone is able to deal with the tensions and fears and anxieties in different ways. So my interest in helping us sort out the healthy behavior patterns, both personal and public, come from wanting to just slightly redirect the unhealthy ones. When I first came to Hope Church in 2013, the church had just experienced a traumatic split. Half the board and several significant families literally had left overnight. In anger, the spring before I came. Emotional cutoff. And what emotional cutoff does is it increases anxiety. Hope Church was grieving and reeling with these latest departures. But to make matters worse, for many remaining, it was a discouraging time because it wasn't the first time this type of breakup had happened. A leave-taking happened at least once before in the mid-1990s. So while life today at Hope feels currently relatively happy and productive for the church to avoid repeating this cutoff pattern in its next 50 years, we have to look at our history with a very clear eye. And the first step is to move out of secrecy and to tell that story. 
And again, I appreciate Bruce and Corey for being truth tellers at 10 o'clock. We must notice what makes us anxious now and how we handle that tension. We have to be willing to challenge and change our behaviors repeatedly. And we have to be thoughtful about the boundaries we set and the choices we make. So let me pause before we look more closely at this church split in 1995. Because the church was not filled with bad people then or now. I'm not blaming or condemning anyone here at all. In fact, blaming others is a symptom of emotional cutoff. Oh, it's your fault. I'm out of here. Many factors are involved in complex family and church systems, internal and external. We can look at history earlier than the 1990s. For example, we could ask, we could ask, about 1968, the founding of the church. How many founding families left all souls in a form of emotional cutoff? They couldn't stand that system and wanted to start a new one. There may have been a few, I don't know. Or how many of us, a significant majority, I think, left childhood religious traditions in a form of emotional cutoff. We left in a huff and swore never to re-examine it again. I'm done. I'm done with Catholicism, Episcopal, Jewish, whatever. We might even view the start of the Reformation in the 1500s and our Unitarian Universalist religious traditions as being born out of emotional cutoff from the then Catholic Church. So it's not weird. It's not terrible. It's not the best. I'm churning up complicated waters to make clear to you how many issues can be involved in leaving any church, any family, any situation. And some actions are so deeply rooted in historical patterns, it takes time and wisdom to discern your real motives. Avoiding cutoff means leaving something well, communicating your needs, and taking responsibility for your own actions. So back to hope in the 1990s. On the one hand, hope is thriving, welcoming new members, growing, worshiping together, assisting in the community, having fun. The church has a lively preschool. The church is overflowing with children and youth. The congregation is faithfully paying off building debt and paying staff. At the same time, the mood in the church is tense and explosive. When I reread the annual minutes, I can feel the struggles for power and the lack of mutual trust. Every decision by the board is questioned by church members. There's great fear. But the schisms and divisions are not exclusive to this church. At the same time, power revolutions are taking place in our Unitarian Universalist Association, the UUA. Unitarian Universalist churches around the country, including Hope, as well as the UUA, are catching up on gender equality. 
a change that happened in can take decades, centuries. So the 1990s was a good time to make good on 30 years of deliberate pushes for gender equality. Because back in 1977, at a UUA General Assembly, the Women and Religion Resolution had been adopted unanimously. This was a historic, not historic, a historic turning point in the ways in which women participated in our tradition on every level. For example, in the exclusively male occupation of ministry, an increasing number of women were attending a seminary, being ordained, and slowly being allowed to lead churches. Because for at least two millennia, this won't surprise you, Theological myths and stories emphasized men. Slowly feminist and womanist, and then muheristis, muherista theology came along to re-examine all of the original texts and commentary. These feminist lenses looked from the perspective of transnational female identities. These new theologies gave rise to new ways of teaching religious ideas, of worshiping, and of who could serve as a leader on the church. Allow me to pause again and look at the 1990s, from the 1990s to talk about how our church is organized. Bruce kind of gave us a similar refresher course. We are different from most churches in town. We do not have a bishop. We do not have an elder council. Those would be directing us in our beliefs and our organizational chart. Instead, Hope Unitarian Church is an autonomous, free church. It is you, the congregation, and more precisely, the voting members who decide Hope's values and goals. Our structure, or in church language, our polity, is called congregational. And this differentiates us from any mainline denominational church, any Catholic, Methodist, Episcopal, or Presbyterian. We share structure with um, Baptists and United Church of Christ. They are also congregational. So this group of gathered people is empowered to choose its own minister, Again, unlike other denominations where the minister or priest is chosen for the congregation, you all call your own minister. We are bound today by this formal call to one another. This arrangement of authority defines our, our relationship. It includes a free pulpit and free pew. In this dance of worship and theology, your called minister agrees to preach the truth as that person sees fit. Here at Hope, you allow me, it is such a gift, you allow me to study and write and experience life and then preach week after week. What I understand of the world, what I misunderstand of the world, what I believe is true and real, and what is the gospel with a little g or good news? 
You can argue with my preaching and conclusions, and you have, thank you, don't stop. But you agree not to fire me because I say something you disagree with. My job is not at stake the way Bishop Carlton Pearson's was, for those of you who watched the Netflix movie Come Sunday, Tuesday night. He changed his theology, had a new understanding of the world and a new truth, and was kicked out of his Pentecostal denomination, Azusa International, Interdenominational Fellowship of Christian Churches. But I'm not the only one with power. You have power, equal power. You are free not to stay in the pew if I take stances on any of today's pressing issues that you feel is immoral. As the wise Unitarian theologian James Luther Adams pointed out, our church is based on mutual, mutual consent, not coercion. I do not instill fear using theology to make you sit there. And this freedom of association is the basis of all, all healthy human relations. So we've raced through this church history and polity lesson because it describes the flow of power of authority we share. We all have power. We just have to acknowledge how it works. And when you ignore it or don't discuss it, it becomes a source of tension. So looking back from today to 1995, Hope has a brand new minister, Reverend Gary Blaine. He comes into a church system just when a strong vocal group at Hope is struggling with bringing forward female scholarship and leadership retrieving matriarchal religious history and theology with a new curriculum called Cakes for the Queen of Heaven. It's being taught here at Hope as well as all around the country. It was and is, it is still around in revised formats, an adult religious education curriculum by the Reverend Shirley Rank. And it looks at pre-Judeo-Christian cultures that worship the female as divine. And the concepts of equality and reverence for the female is, in a, in a religious setting is eye-opening to many of the participants at the time. It expands their worldview. It's exciting. One of Hope's earlier ministers, the Reverend Bill Gold, had actually been teaching about ancient goddesses and gods with his own collection of statues and idols. Hence, the content of the class wasn't new to this church. But the efforts to change power structures, pushing against ancient patriarchal Christian interpretations, against male ministers, although Hope has had a long history of strong female leaders on the board, committee position, But it all proves really tricky. The feminist neo-pagan theology serves as the flashpoint for all these other issues. Just 
just as arguments between partners are seldom about the toothpaste or the clothes dropped on the floor or even infidelity. It's about deeper stuff. At the time, Hope has a lecture committee bringing national speakers to town. They've invited national public radio journalist Margot Adler to speak. And she's a, a Wiccan priestess and author of Drawing Down the Moon, which is a classic text on neo-pagan thought and ritual. And our UUA publishing arm, the Beacon Press, is just about to publish a new work of hers, Heretic's Heart, A Journey Through Spirit and Revolution. So we're all deeply embedded in this. In a struggle over power and authority, Hope's board cancels the spring lecture. It had, according to the papers, uh, the documents, previously approved. And I've heard different versions of why, and I don't actually think we need to rehash that decision. We don't need to sort out who was right and who was wrong because all disagreements are multi-sided. All parties can make different decisions in the heat of a moment. But what happens is canceling the lecture brings rage and shame and disappointment distrust, it increases tensions and anxieties. People take sides. Leadership is pitted against leadership, members against members. Those exploring and enjoying neo-pagan ideas and rituals demand they take over the pulpit monthly to lead the service. And this request steps right over this free pulpit agreement and is a power move. From afar, I can imagine a variety of ways to bring earth-centered traditions into the church. I can imagine collaborating during select worship services. Many UU churches have special interest theological groups, from Christian to pagan to Buddhist to Jewish, who study together, read. These affinity groups are different from taking over worship. In fact, we're a religious tradition that makes room for six different sources of wisdom. And the sources, really, they're actually infinite, but for institutional purposes, we say six. And we'll be exploring them in greater depth in August during our What's the Big Idea series of welcoming sermons. And these neo-pagan ideas, they're included in the six. The sixth one reads spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. That's not scary. In other words, accommodations for different wishes might have been found, but it's so easy from here to look back. But it was a problem of the church and its members not knowing how to trust, talk, and work through tensions. In healthy systems without anxiety, different teachings can influence worship and church activities. In anxious systems, 
They demand all or nothing. So as recorded in our Board of Trustees Handbook timeline, an estimated 45 members split to form Tulsa's fourth Unitarian Universalist congregation, Community Unitarian Universalist Congregation. The new congregation they formed was on Yale, I think, although someone just said Harvard, Yale, and lasted for several years. I don't know exactly how long. The cutoff that occurred right before I came has some similar echoes. The group who left started their own non-denominational spiritual group Sunday Assembly, a secular congregation. I don't think it's still active in Tulsa. And I'm sorry for that because we need diversity in as many liberal progressive groups as we can. And I can say to both groups who left over the years, leading a church is hard work with many moving parts. Anyone who serves as staff or volunteer here over the years can affirm the extraordinary effort it takes. But really, the deeper message of this sermon asks us to continually observe how we deal with differences of all types. It is a genuine religious and spiritual, it is our genuine and religious spiritual work to heed all of the healthy tools we have to sustain a community while making room for diverse ideas and hopes and dreams. In our pews today, we have neo-pagans, we have Christians, we have Buddhists, we have Unitarian Universalists, we have atheists, we have humanists, we have people who go, I don't know, I don't know. (laughs) Keep asking. May we always exchange ideas with each other open-heartedly, no one person holds all the truth. That's the sermon right there. No one person holds all the truth. At the same time, when people do leave our community, and they will, May we not act as a cult. May we let people go with love. May we accept our anxiety about having anyone leave. It is normal. May we listen if they are angry. We sometimes do exit interviews to better understand someone's hurt and concerns. We make changes if they are warranted and if we understand so far as we can. When I talked to our um, congregational life representative at the UUA, Connie Goodbread, about this sermon, I checked in with her. This is what I'm about to do. This is what we're doing. Am I stabbing myself? Uh, We had a long, lovely conversation, and she sent me information uh, called The Art and Science of Forgiveness. And at first I thought, oh, she sent me the wrong materials, until I realized Forgiveness is at the heart of repairing and changing emotional cutoff. And as I read it and I absorbed it, I realized forgiveness is the ultimate act of self-differentiation. It disrupts all 
cut off. Whether you've been cut off from or whether you're the one cutting off. It is the foundation of all healthy relations. The option to forgive implies that we have discretion as to whether or not we took offense in the first place. All those times we take stuff personally. All the times we don't accept our own power and agency. So listen up, all who rest certain in your theologies and who are perfectionists, myself included. We have choices how we respond each and every time we are in the middle of disagreements. Church, personal, work. We can choose to forgive ourselves today for whatever role those left behind played in 1995 that added to tension and anxiety. We, for, we can forgive all those who left. We forgive you. And lastly, to be a healthier congregation, we can get very clear about boundaries, saying, we would hate to see you go, but if you're not happy among us, or if you're unwilling to work with us, then we wish you well somewhere else. I am sad for the emotional cutoff hope has survived over its decades. What painful times. And I'm so grateful for those who worked through it and stayed and reached out to those who left, not begging them to come back, but saying, we still love you. May we bless all who have left, hoping they have found community elsewhere. It's what we want for everyone, not just those here on this hill. May it be so.